I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast. If you appreciate Cato's research and analysis, I'd like to ask you to financially support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute to advance the ideals of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. If you support our mission by becoming a new Cato Podcast sponsor or renew your sponsorship with an increased gift, one generous sponsor will be matching your gift dollar for dollar that will double your impact. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support our work. This is the only time of the year when I make this request, so I'm adding something as well. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I will gladly give you a shout out on the podcast, or you can designate an individual to receive all the benefits of that donation. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 21st, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. When the software that runs your network that you trust to provide security is compromised, it's a very bad day. We may not learn for some time the extent of this likely Russian-led attack on American network security. Cato's Julian Sanchez describes what we do know now. I think the full impact of this is going to take quite a while to fully assess. Uh, But what we know now is that uh, a uh, supply chain attack, which I'll explain in a second, uh, mounted by a very sophisticated adversary, uh, attack has been widely attributed to uh, Russian intelligence, um, was able to compromise uh, a very widely used piece of uh, network management software, uh, the Orion package produced by a company called SolarWinds based out of Austin, Texas. Um, so this is software that's used by enterprises to manage their uh, their computer networks um, and is used by virtually everyone, by um, more than 400 of the, of the Fortune 500 companies, by uh, a huge number of government clients. Um, this is called a, a supply chain attack because the idea is um, to, if you want to do a bank heist, um, uh, that has uh, and they've got uh, strong security. If you can infiltrate the company that makes the locks, um, you're going to have a much easier time getting in. In this case, um, uh, you, know, you have these very secure networks. If you can uh, infiltrate the companies that legitimately provide them with software, um, then you're you're able to essentially sneak inside the perimeter. And in the case of uh, something like network management software, um, you you have an in that is essentially a tool that already has um, s- some pretty high level privileges. You know, when you think about uh, apps on your phone, um, the operating system on your phone isn't going to let uh, you know a-, a game that you download access the files that your email or your or your chats are in. Um, the operating system controls the permissions um, that are available uh, to. Uh, uh, to different programs, um, but of course, if the operating system itself is compromised, um, then you can no longer rely on that. Um, and of course, network management software, because it's sort of the, uh, uh, a fundamental layer on which the the, the system runs, um, needs to have um, high privileges, and so that that makes it a, a particularly dangerous piece of software uh, to have compromised. This appears to have been uh, pushed out between uh, March and June. Uh, of the year in in updates, um, it looks like although they have a, a huge number of clients, uh, it seems like only about eighteen thousand, but well, only about eighteen thousand clients uh, downloaded this uh, infected uh, software. This is about half of the of the installed user base of this particular package. 
And you know, this is one of these uh, perennial dilemmas here is if you want software to be secure, it needs to be patched and updated regularly as new uh, vulnerabilities and bugs are discovered all the time. Um, but it also means you have uh, this process of installing uh, and, and having to trust uh, that that new update is legitimate. It's, you know, it's signed by the developer, and so you can trust uh, the contents of this uh, uh, of this security update. Uh, and it appears that in this case, uh, attackers were able to uh, sneak some malicious code uh, into one of those updates. And what we now know is that a large number of government agencies, uh, the State Department, the Commerce Department, uh, Department of Homeland Security, parts of the Pentagon, have all been affected uh, going back probably to about March. Um, so we have a situation now where a, again, probably Russian foreign adversary uh, has has been inside the perimeter uh, for something like nine months now. Um, now, the cybersecurity uh, 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 infrastructure security agency uh, sent out a directive essentially ordering all federal agencies to pull this uh uh, this compromised software, which one is sort of easier said than done. This is not, you know, delete delete Angry Birds from your phone. This is um, you've got to you've got to pull the the software that is managing the network. Um, so it, it's not like you can you know you can just drag it to the to the trash bin um, and and e- easy you know easy as pie. Um, but also you know the first thing a sophisticated attacker does when they get into a network is try to establish persistence. That's, jargon there, right? Um, they try to ensure that if the uh, initial access point um, is is removed, is, is found and, and taken away from them, um, they have other routes back into the system. And so they've had quite a long time to establish a foothold uh, and, and build other ways into the system. And, and incidentally, uh, CISA has said um, that they uh, believe there are other exploits that were used so that um, this is a again, a very complex and sophisticated uh, operation um, that may not have relied on this one trick uh, to get in. So uh, if you were in charge of a broad hack that had many thousands of potential victims uh, and you're working on behalf of a state actor, probably, uh, where are the jewels? What, what's the stuff that you're going to go for when uh, when you get in? Well, so fortunately, the most classified information is kept on separate segregated networks that are uh, not supposed to be connected to um, the, the public internet or any computers that are connected to the public internet. So there's uh, CIPRNET, which is uh, the, the Pentagon sort of network for information uh, classified up to the secret level, uh, and then there's another a network called JWix that's for the uh, the most highly classified information. That's the Joint Worldwide uh, Intelligence Communication System, uh, and these ought to be uh, fully segregated so that uh, compromising the unclassified systems would not uh, allow them access to the classified systems. Um, you have to uh, hope that that uh, that sort of firewall has been uh, maintained. Um, there are sort of various uh, clever ways that, that folks have found to uh, attempt to circumvent that kind of uh, air gapping or, or segregation. Um, but as far as we know at present, we're talking about compromise of unclassified networks. But um, you know, there's still an enormous amount uh, that you can potentially extract from that. So the correspondence of uh, government officials, uh, again, 
not necessarily classified uh, at the time it's sent, but you know, very often we, we find information is unclassified and later uh, deemed classified. Um, people don't always know at the time they're writing something uh, whether it's going to be determined to be classified later. Um, but also, you know, just a lot of knowledge of the plans and uh, practices of government agencies and, and personnel. Um, you know, potentially information that might be uh, embarrassing to individuals and uh, open them to, to blackmail. They hope, you know, you would hope people would learn enough not to um, send that kind of information on their government work network. But um, as we have learned over the past few years, not all government employees are uh, so circumspect in their use of uh, of their government devices. So, um, you know, that's, that's certainly a concern. Um, you know, there appears to have been some interest uh, in uh, think tanks, interestingly enough, uh, outside government, so knock wood, and also some of the the, the technology standard setting bodies uh, within uh, the Commerce Department seem to have been of interest. Um, and that includes you know, evaluations like what kinds of, uh, sort of cutting edge technology are uh, permitted to be sold to uh, to foreign powers. Aside from uh, the sort of op- what seem to be obvious targets, uh, per- perhaps there's opportunities for corporate espionage here as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Microsoft uh, has reported that they detected the uh, malware in, in some of their systems. Um, we do know uh, that, again, because even if this the malware is, is itself on um, you know, thousands of systems, um, the Actually executing a penetration and extraction, uh, if you're interested in keeping it stealthy and undetected, which is, is critical, um, means you you can't sort of simultaneously attack all of the systems. So it seems like probably of the systems where the malware was installed, less fewer than one percent um, actually then were actively compromised uh, by a, a follow up attack. Uh, it seems as though for the most part. Uh, these other compromised systems checked in with a command and control system and were told, uh, we don't need you right now. Just go go dormant, go quiet. Um, and again, that makes sense when you're, you're uh, prioritizing secrecy because the more different entities you're attacking, uh, the, the more additional risk you're assuming um, that one of those uh, targets is going to detect the attack and then inform the others, at which point, of course, the game is up. Um, but yeah, uh, corporate entities seem to have also been on the list of, uh, of targets. But it does look like, um, at least looking at the known targets uh, at this point, the priority uh, here does not seem to have been uh, you know, stealing intellectual property from American companies. It looks like, um, again, governments and policy organizations um, we're focused on in a way that, that again, suggests a, a government actor, certainly. What can raise the costs of these kinds of attacks? Uh, you know, it, it, it seems that there are, there ought to be uh, a, a greater focus on preventing precisely this kind of uh, infiltration. Right. And, you know, this is, this is a, a problem that is notoriously difficult to deal with via uh, traditional of deterrence, um, just because the value to the attacker of a successful penetration is usually so great that it's going to outweigh a punishment or a, a sanction that the defender can credibly threaten. Um, so we could say we're going to drop nuclear bombs if you do this again, but 
no one, I think, really believes that that we would, in fact, do that. Uh, we've we've heard, I think, some politicians talking very loosely about this as an act of war uh, or or like a digital Pearl Harbor. Um, but ultimately, this is espionage, um, and traditionally, espionage has not been seen as an act of war. It's been understood as something that uh, states do to each other that we certainly do to other countries, uh, pretty pretty promiscuously, um, and we some level expect them to do to us uh and that you know has not traditionally been been seen as something that provokes a uh, a kinetic response uh we talk about russia well we've already hit them with a, some hefty sanctions so you know there is this question of well is this something um that is effectively deterrable uh, and it might be but we would need to develop a new um you know, set of norms and understandings about uh what what the range of uh, of responses are uh, part of the problem is an attribution problem. Um, so we believe this is Russia. We haven't seen sort of the public evidence, but it seems pretty plausible that, uh, um, that that's an accurate assessment. Um, but you know, the question becomes, well, if you're, if you're going to take retaliatory action, not necessarily military action, but some kind of retaliatory action, um, what's the level of certainty you have about the attribution of the attack? Um, one thing that the attackers in this case seem to have done um as part of that sophistication is they used uh, U.S.-based infrastructure to mount the attack. So you don't suddenly have uh, you know, Homeland Security computers uh, shoving huge amounts of data out to a server in Ukraine, which might uh, raise a red flag. Um, but so you have these, these, these problems of attribution, uh, which is, all right, are you sure enough about the origins of this that you are um, prepared to... Uh, act in a, a you know in, in a a punitive way based on that, but also just you know the question of well is is there a punishment that you can impose, especially on countries that are you know already maybe not not in our good books, um, that is proportionate that's not going to be seen by the international community as wildly unreasonable, um, and is but is also going to be sufficient to outweigh the enormous value to the attacker of having all this very valuable information. Um, so the other side is, of course, defense. Um, and you know, it, is, it is just a, a kind of inherent difficulty of uh, modern cybersecurity when it comes to this kind of attack that any complex network of any significant size is going to need to be running a lot of software that was not produced in-house. Um, you, know, you, you actually probably wouldn't trust uh, software that was sort of exclusively produced by uh, the government, right? Um, you probably have dozens or hundreds of different vendors, if not thousands of different vendors, who are producing software that's running on that network. Uh, and so uh, you, know, you don't just have to worry about your own defenses, but at some level about their defenses. Uh, and so that does create a, an enormous difficulty. Um, and obviously, we're seeing... Uh, we're seeing uh, uh, you know, the result of it now, I think, you know, one question that, that uh, is going to have to be explored is uh, how was this achieved, right? How is it that code that had been altered by an attacker was then signed by uh, essentially a security company, you know, a company that is, that is uh, producing software that is in part meant to secure networks. Um, and, at, no one in that process realized that um, the code that they were shipping was different from you know the code their people had written.
anybody who's worked in a corporate setting uh, and gone through the basic uh, good practices as a user of the internet, Kevin Mitnick, of course, is somebody who's now well known as being somebody who provides that kind of uh, uh, training to uh, organizations uh, after being a notorious hacker. Um, that doesn't seem like this kind, this attack uh, at all. Right. No, I mean, the, the, you know, advice you will always hear or the instructions you'll hear and, uh, you know, a corporate orientation or a orientation for a government agency are, well, you know, be careful about, you know, what links you click on, don't download, don't install something you aren't sure of the provenance of, um, you know, and a good system administrator will, will basically make it as difficult as possible for the user to make a mistake. They will not allow you um, to install on the, you know, the company or agency network software that is not uh, approved, but this was software that was approved and was legitimate. In a way, this is not that different from an attack the U.S. government itself used uh, in deploying the Stuxnet virus. Um, we essentially used some stolen credentials to uh, authenticate our code as being legitimately uh, issued by a, a company that was, you know, supposed to be. Uh, having software installed on, on the systems that it infected. Um, this was used to target uh, uh, Iran's uh, nuclear program some years ago. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, you know, that's, of course, why companies, developers um, normally sort of reserve their highest level of security for their own signing keys, for the cryptographic keys that authenticate a piece of software as really having come from Microsoft or Apple uh, or whoever the developer is, uh, and usually those are kept air gapped and and with again fairly elaborate um, hardware based security, so that you you need someone sort of physically there at a device to um, to activate the the process of signing code as authenticated from the developer. Um, so again, you know one of the one of the questions that that obviously SolarWinds is going to have to answer is, well, what, you know, what, what went wrong? Um, Cause it's one thing to say someone got into your system that, that happens um, and, and was tinkering around, but um, how is it that they got in, changed the code and then, you know, there's no process that detected that before someone took the step of signing and authenticating that code. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.